Hey, uh, we're going to be in the book of Esther. If you don't know where that is, if you go towards the middle of your Bible, you should find Psalms. Right before that's another big book called Job, or it looks like Job. That's okay. And then right before Job is Esther. That's where we're going to be this morning. What we're doing as a church is right now we've just been kind of going through. We have a church Bible reading plan where we encourage everyone in the church to spend a couple of... uh, Uh, chapters a day in God's Word on their own. And so I've been trying to encourage you as a church going through that with some video posts and and some preaching. And of course, our life group lessons come from that as well. Today, we're in the book of Esther, which has got to be one of the absolute best stories in all the Bible. It is a tremendous story. If you don't, uh, and I'm not trying to say that some parts of the Bible aren't as exciting as the others because it's all God's Word, but can we admit that it's more fun to read Esther than the lists of genealogies? Okay, it is. Um, or uh, Anyway, I'll, I'll move on from that. Esther takes you about 40 minutes to read. I encourage you to read it on your own if you haven't, uh, but because um, I, I want everyone here to be on the same page. I know some of you are super familiar with Esther. Some of you have never read it. I'm going to tell you the story of of Esther. It's kind of a true story, similar to Cinderella, uh, about a young woman with humble roots who gets to be the king's wife. But it takes place in a time of history. Uh, In fact, if you uh, remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at King Nebuchadnezzar, who had this dream that was speaking of future empires. It takes place during the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians ruled the world at this time, and uh, they had uh, 127 provinces that went from Ethiopia all the way to India. The Persian Empire is, a, is an empire from uh, antiquity, from history. It's 2,500 years ago. And what I want to do is tell you the story, and just because visual aids are better than you just looking at me, I'm going to use some pictures from a movie One Night with the King. There's basically four main characters I want to introduce you to, and then we will get to some verses in Esther chapter 4 if you want to turn there, because uh, I can't read all of it. But let me just tell you the story. So first uh, person I want to introduce to you to is the king of Persia. Uh, his name is King Xerxes. He's also called King Ahasuerus, but since that's harder to pronounce than King Xerxes, I'm just going to go with Xerxes. Uh, he, again, was a real king. You can look, look it up in the encyclopedias and things like that, the most powerful man in the world, uh, over these 127 provinces. So I give you the king. Next, I want to introduce you to a man named Mordecai, who was a Jew. He looks a lot like John Rhys Davies. Um, he was a faithful man of God, uh, one, of, one of God's chosen people. He served in the king's palace. In fact, he'd sit at the king's gate. And one day, he even saved the king's life because there was a plot to assassinate the king. And he overheard it. He reported it to the king's guards, and they investigated it. They found it to be true. Before the plot happened, they arrested the guys. And he even got his name written down in the official logbook of the chronicles of the kingdom of Persia. And so the book of Esther opens in chapter 1. The king is looking for a new wife. And the reason why he's looking for a new wife is he had to banish the last one. Uh, What ended up happening is he was throwing a party, people were getting drunk, and he decided, you know what, I want to show off my wife's beauty. So he asked, or he tells the queen to come show herself up so he could parade her beauty in front of his guests. And she said, no. And not only did she embarrass him, 
But then all of his counselors got together and said, listen, king, your wife, the queen, has blatantly disobeyed you, and now none of us will ever get our wives to do anything. I mean, after all, isn't that how it's supposed to work, that the wife is supposed to do everything her husband says? You would think so. That's right. Michael? Michael? I'm going to pray for you tonight. man. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, uh, so he banishes her, and he wants to find a new queen. And so what, what he does, because he's the king, is every young, beautiful, single, virgin woman in all 127 provinces of his kingdom, from Ethiopia to, to uh, India, was brought in. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of women to be in the king's harem. I don't know if he had a beauty pageant or what, but basically all these women to choose from. It just so happens that one of those young women was Esther. Now, Esther was a Jew. She was actually the cousin or niece, however you look at it, of Mordecai. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, but her Persian name was Esther. And Mordecai raised her. She was an orphan because every Disney movie has an orphan as the uh, main character. That's a joke. Anyway, uh, Mordecai warns her, listen, when you go into the king's harem, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew because... Jews are hated. Don't tell them your name is Hadassah. Go by your name, Esther. And she was, the Bible says, beautiful of form and appearance. She was a beautiful woman. Not only on the outside, but on the inside, she had wisdom, grace. And as it turned out, uh, the king chose her to become his queen. So now I give you Queen Esther. So we have Jewish Queen Esther, who no one knows she's Jewish. Her uncle or cousin Mordecai working at the gate and the king. And there's one more person I need to introduce you to. The last character is the villain. And whenever I say his name, I want you to either boo him or hiss him or go or thumbs down or something. And that is Haman. All right. You guys are getting it. So he is Xerxes' right-hand man. He's the number two man in all the kingdom. He's the most powerful man except for Xerxes. And he hated all Jews, and especially Mordecai. And the reason he hated Mordecai is because whenever Haman would walk through the, uh, the, the city, everybody would bow down and show him respect except Mordecai, who would not do that. Well, he found out that Mordecai was one of those Jews, and so he decided, we need to kill all the Jews. And so Haman comes to the king, and he says, King, there's a group of people in your kingdom that honestly, they're rebellious, they're, we need to get rid of them. We just need to kill, exterminate all the Jews. Now, this is going to cost you some money, so I will go ahead and contribute 10,000 talents of silver into the king's personal treasury. I'll handle everything. All I need you to do is to, you know, give me your ring so we can make it a law. And, of course, uh, the king trusted him. And so this law went into effect that all the Jews would be killed. Now, a couple of things happen uh, that you need to know about is that when a law was given in the Persian Empire, you could not change the law. Because they believed that the king was infallible. And so he could not change his mind. If a law was made, that was it. That, if he changed his mind, that would mean there was a mistake. So the law was given that all Jews would be killed. Enemies of the Jews could all kill the Jews on a certain, certain date. And then they cast lots they, they, to determine which date that law would go into effect. And this was in the first month of the year. And it happened to be 
12 months or 11 months out, the end of the year. So there was a lot of time. The law was given, the edict was given that all Jews will be killed on such and such a date throughout the entire world. And so Mordecai, of course, finds out about this law. And he, through a messenger, he begins to communicate with Esther, who is the queen. And he says, Esther, you remember how I told you not to tell anyone you were a Jew? Yeah, well, now you got to tell. You've got to go into the king. You've got to ask him to save your life. You've got to ask him to save the life of your people. And she's like, Mordecai, remember what happened to the last queen when she disobeyed? You don't go see the king unless you're invited. In fact, if you walk in to see the king without an invitation, you're automatically killed and put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter. And he has not invited me in to see him for a month. I can't do this. And so here's where we pick up our story in Esther chapter 4. If you want to look with me in verse 13. Mordecai sends the message to Esther and he says this. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, all the Jews will die. Is that what he says? Interesting. He doesn't say, if you remain silent, we're all going to die. He says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. Now, why would Mordecai say that? Because Mordecai knew that God created the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, and it said and promised over and over again that this nation was God's people who would endure how long? Forever. And oh, by the way, as I stand here today, guess who's still alive on the exact same piece of property that God gave them thousands of years ago? The Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Israel, the 12 uh, sons of Israel are going to sit on 12 thrones, well, 12 gates. Anyway, you get the idea. They're going to last forever. And Mordecai had the faith to believe that the Jews were not going to be exterminated. By the way, it's kind of a popular thing to want to kill Jews. You might have known of somebody else who recently tried to exterminate all the Jews. Why is that? Because Satan knows that they are still God's people. They're still God's chosen people. The Jews and the Christians, the ones that are mostly persecuted. Uh, but Mordecai says, you know what? They're going to endure and you're going to perish. And so he convinces her oh, by saying this, who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Maybe, Esther, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. And so Esther says to him, okay, go ahead, assemble all the Jews. I want you to, uh, that are found in Susa, Susa is the capital city where they're out, get all the Jews together and fast for me. Do not eat, do not drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to law, and if I perish, I perish. What a great step of faith to put her life on the line to try to save her people. And so, spoiler alert, if you haven't read tomorrow's Bible reading plan, she does go into the king, and the king does extend the golden scepter, so she does not killed. And the king says to her, what is troubling you, queen? What can I do for you? And she says, well, I want you to come tonight to a banquet that I've prepared for you and Haman. And I'll tell you then. 
And so she goes to the banquet that night. And the king asks her, what's troubling you? How do you tell the king that his most trusted right-hand man is your enemy? Something in her spirit just wasn't right. She said, you know what? Will you please come back tomorrow night and I'll tell you then. And so she does that. Now, in between these two banquets, that very night, two very important things happen. First of all, Haman. Come on, give it to him, man. He's, he's no good. Haman. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He walks by Mordecai, and one more time, Mordecai refuses to bow down, and it just sends him through the roof. He's angry, he's crazy. He goes home, and he starts venting on his wife, and he says, you know what? I'm the most powerful man except the king in all the world. I'm rich, I have honor. In fact, even tonight, I was the only one invited to a banquet with the king and his wife, but all of that means nothing to me because of this one stinking Jew, Mordecai, who won't bow down to me. And his wife says to him, dude. Says that in the original Hebrew. Dude, why don't you just ask the king if you can kill this one Jew early? Why didn't I think of that? Of course, he'll let me kill him. We're going to kill them all later. I'll just go to the king and ask him to kill this one Jew tomorrow. And so he builds a gallows 75 feet tall in front of his own house, which, by the way, is about twice as high as that peak of the roof there. I mean, we're talking six stories high. He sets up a gallows, and he's going to go in the next morning and ask the king to hang Mordecai. One other thing happens that very night. The king cannot sleep. He has insomnia. And so when you can't sleep, you got a lot on your mind. You got to distract yourself. You get up, you read a book or, you know, maybe a boring book, or maybe you have somebody read it to you. So the king's servant begins to read to him from the chronicles of the logbook of the kingdom of Persia, and just so happens to come to that portion where Mordecai saved his life. And I imagine that the king shot up in bed. He wasn't asleep anymore. He said, that guy Mordecai, he saved my life. Yeah. Did we ever do anything for him? Did we ever honor him? No, king, we didn't. And so the next morning, Haman comes in to see the king. He says, king, I want to ask you a favor. (laughs) Now, you know why he's there, right? He wants to ask him if he can kill Mordecai. He said, king, I want to ask you a favor. The king's like, yeah, just a minute. Before I ask you that, before you ask me that, let me ask you something. There's a man in my kingdom that I really want to honor. What would you recommend that I do for this guy? And Mordecai, uh, and, and, and our villain, I'm not going to say his name so you, our villain says, uh, well, gosh, he's thinking, who does he want to honor except me? So tell you what, king, here's what you do. You take that man you want to honor. You put him on your horse. You put your robes on him. You put your crown on his head. You have somebody important. Walk him through the entire city, leading him through on that horse all day long, just saying, this is what will be done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king says, that is a terrific idea. Go do it right now yourself for Mordecai the Jew. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. To see the look on his face. And don't tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor. Because this guy's last day of his life, he's walking through the entire city. Thus it will be done for the man the king wants to honor. 
with the one guy he was planning on hanging that very night. He gets back from doing this. They grab him. They bring him into the banquet with the king and the queen. And then the king says, tell me what it is that's troubling you, Esther. And she says, I'm asking you for my life and the life of my people. If we were made slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. But please save my life. He's like, who in the world would try to kill my queen? And she says, it's him. And all of a sudden, make a long story short, Haman is executed. Yes! That's what I'm talking about. Dan, that Star Trek reference was just for you and Morgan. I want you to know that. So He's executed, but we still have this law out there that all the Jews are going to be killed. Can't change the law because once a law is given, it cannot be revoked. And so what they do is they make a new law. This is the workaround. This is how... Politics begins. We can't revoke that law, but we'll pass a new law that the Jews can fight back, that anyone who wants to help the Jews can fight back, and we can all kill the Jews' enemies. And so that's exactly what happens. The Jews defeat their enemies. Mordecai is actually exalted to the right hand of the throne, takes the place of the previous bad guy, and I'm pretty sure they lived happily ever after. Okay, they probably didn't leave happily ever, live happily ever after because this is real life and not a fairy tale. But here's the most interesting thing about the book of Esther. And if you're a student of the Bible, you probably know this already. It is trivia, but it is not trivial. That Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where God's name does not appear. The, now I'm not saying God's not in the book. Okay, God is working through the events. But what I'm saying is that there's absolutely no reference to God in this entire book. You can't find anything. Nothing direct, nothing indirect. There's no miracles. There's no angels. There's no supernatural, you know, fire coming down from heaven. Everything's ordinary events. There's not even prayer. No one's even talking about God or praying to God. You say, what about the fasting? Well, if you go back and look at it, she didn't say, let's fast and pray or pray call upon God for three days. She just said, let's fast for three days and we'll fast. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And the point is, God is, we're meant to understand that God is the one working anonymously. Have you ever gotten an anonymous letter? And I'm not talking about, you know, social media posts from anonymous people. Those are not good. I'm talking about the good kind of anonymous, like somebody who sends you something to encourage you or sends you a gift, an anonymous gift, or an anonymous cash donation. There's a lot of reasons why people do things anonymously. Well, in the book of Esther, God does not sign his name. And this is the main point that I want to make today, is I'm absolutely convinced that this is how God works today. That God works behind the scenes in a way that seems to be ordinary and not spectacular, parting the Red Sea, fire coming down from heaven. And sometimes we think that that's how God's supposed to work. You say, why in the world would God work that way? Well, I'm going to answer it by this way. There's a time where Jesus was asked the question, why do you speak in parables? Do you remember what Jesus said? 
I'm paraphrasing, but here's what Jesus said. The reason I do this is so that those who have faith and believe will continue to have faith and believe. And those who don't believe will continue to not believe. You see, God does not want to force you to believe in him. You have been created with a choice. And if you're here this morning and you're not a person of faith, God most often works in a way around you and in your life and in the world where you can look at that and say, that wasn't God. That was, a that was some coincidence. But a person of faith would look at the exact same circumstance and say, praise the Lord. Look what God did. This is how God works. Even today, I think one of the greatest evidences of this is, is when we look at creation. The Christian looks at creation and says, look what God has made. And the unbeliever looks at creation and says, look what happens all by itself when nothing explodes. That was supposed to be a joke. And if you're here this morning, you say, well, that, that seems ridiculous. Why would God want to remain anonymous? If God existed, if God was real, then God would just show up to humanity and prove to us that he existed. And my answer to that is he did. Come on. There we go. God did. God already showed up on this earth and proved that he exists. He healed the Lame, he caused the blind to see. He raised the dead. He himself died and rose again from the dead. No other person has ever claimed to that. No other person do we tell time by his arrival. And even though Jesus did that, there were those who did not believe in him. See, one of the reasons that, that this is, well, I'm going to just share this quote with you. Norman Geisler says this, and this is true from the Bible, that God has already provided enough evidence for his existence that those who truly want to know him, let me read that again. God has already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him, yet he's, yet, let, yet he's left some ambiguity so as to not compel the unwilling. In other words, God wants to give you the choice. You have the opportunity to love him, you have the opportunity to reject him. And that is what the book of Esther is all about. Because Esther never mentions God in the entire book. And yet we see all these amazing events coming together in perfect symmetry. There's this profound theological point being made. And that is God is in control behind the scenes. In fact, this is the big idea of Esther. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down inside your bulletin. God is always at work through people's choices and circumstances. God is always at work through people's choices and circumstances. And this is hard for us to wrap our mind around because we want it to be one or the other. We want it to be like either God is in control and there's no free will or people are in control and make their free choice and God does not predestine, but he only foreknows what is going on. Because logically in our brains, we can't figure out how both of these can exist at the same time. I got news for you. God's bigger than your brain. How can he be one and also be Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Can't figure it out. How can you have free choice and God still be in control at the same time? He's an amazing big God. 
And the point is, I like to say there are no coincidences, only godsidences. Godsidences. Okay? In fact, let me just give you an example of this. Would we all agree that God's perfect plan from the beginning of time was to send his son Jesus, who was slain from the foundation of the world, to die on the cross for our sins? Say yes. That was God's plan. But in the midst of that plan, people had free choice. Judas made a choice to betray Jesus. Wow, lucky that happened. That was a godsidence. Pontius Pilate made a choice to deliver him over to the people's will or to, to be crucified. The people made a choice to shout for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Satan even made a choice to enter into Judas Iscariot. And yet all the time, who was in control? God. Because free choice and God being in control work at the same time. Again, by the way, I just want to tell you that you have a choice too. Every person. There is a free choice to reject Jesus or to trust in him. And people have said to me, well, what kind of loving God would send people to hell? A loving God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. A loving God sent his only son to live and to die and rise again so that no one would spend eternity separated from him. And the choice is yours. You can reject him. God's given you the right to reject him. There are consequences for choices, but it's your choice. Now let's go back to the book of Esther and see God working through people's choices and circumstances. King Xerxes just happens to choose Esther to be his queen. Godsidence. The lot was cast, and instead of the Jews being executed right away, there were months. Godsidence. The king extends the scepter and doesn't order Esther killed. Godsidence. Esther decides to wait one more day. Godsidence. The king can't sleep. Godsidence. It just so happens that the book was opened up at the place where Mordecai saved his life. Say it. Godsidence. That's it. Man, if I had time, in fact, I, I mean, I could tell you story after story of Godsidences in my life. It's easier to see in the rearview mirror where you look back and you see. You know, there was a night, uh, December 24th, 1986, where my wife made a decision to go to dinner with her uh, roommate, and they came in, and the server happened to seat them in my section, and I thought she was cute, and I asked her for her phone number, and she actually gave me the real number. Yes! Godsidence. My life was changed. And AJ, your life was in the balance. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I always like to say, I hope this isn't a politically incorrect joke, but if she went out for Mexicans, she probably would have had Jose and Maria. And you know, anyway, so that just tells you something about my humor. God is good. I can tell you a time where 30 plus years ago, we were uh, in the Air Force and God sent us back to Spokane. And uh, we were stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base, but we could not get base housing. So we lived with her dad for six months and then moved into base housing. Do you know that was the last six months of his life? He was killed in a car accident. Godsidence. When he died, we were given an inheritance which caused us to leave the Air Force 
to go to seminary to pursue a life of ministry. God even used his death to propel us into ministry. We were on our way to go to seminary when my sister and brother-in-law were in a church that they left and started a new church. They were looking for a pastor. They said, well, hey, my brother's getting out of the military. Maybe he could come. I ended up going to Ocean Shores, God's ends. While I've served the Lord the last 20 some odd years, I've served in broken churches. And then God called me back to this church that had gone through a split. God's events. That's it. Over and over and over. Listen, this morning, <laughs> Seth comes in. I have somebody teaching the life group. Do you understand? This is how God works. We can see Pastor Nick resigns, but three weeks earlier, Aaron's back. And now he's our pastor. Richard is now going to be our youth pastor. This is God working, people. Behind the scenes, through people's choices, through circumstances. God is sovereign over even our human decisions and circumstances. And so what is the application of this? What is the application? Three things. Number one is trust. Trust God's sovereignty. And what, that, what does that look like? Well, you're facing some stuff in your life that you didn't plan. And some of it might be challenging for you right now. Yeah, you can have a choice. You can complain and scream and whine and struggle. Or maybe you can say, okay, God, this wasn't my plan, but here we go. Right? I, if there's anything the last year has taught me, as I face some challenging circumstances with staff, God's taught me he's faithful. Again, he's going to take care of us. He's got a plan. And even in painful circumstances, I know that a lot of us struggle because we think, wait a minute, God caused this bad thing to happen to me. No, that's not true. Most bad that happens in this world comes from evil of human choices, a broken world. You know, yes, God's still in control. Do you know the Bible says that God, that, that five sparrows are sold for two pennies, and yet not one of them falls to the ground, what? Apart from the Father. God even knows when the birds die. Now, don't twist that to mean that God's killing birds. God's just going around killing birds. It's all God's fault. He's killing birds. Why doesn't God stop the birds from dying? It's not God's fault that the bird dies. It's saying God is even in control when that happens. And when painful things happen in our life, listen, the most greatest injustice and painful thing that ever happened, God brought the greatest good for all humanity out of. Say amen. And yes, even Joseph, who was sold by his brothers, betrayed into slavery, looked at them 20 years later and said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so as you walk through this life, there are opportunities to trust God even when things are difficult. The other applications have more practical use for your life today. And I want to challenge you with this. This kind of comes right out of experiencing God for our young single people. Number two, watch to see where God is at work around you. Watch to see. I'm convinced that we spiritually are missing God at work around us because we're looking for, ah! and by the way, if you don't know what that is, that's like we're looking for the angel Gabriel showed up and appeared to me and said, Jim, 
I want you to, you know, or we're looking for miracles or we're looking for signs or we're looking for fire from heaven and the parting of the Red Sea. And that's not how God normally works. We see it in scripture, yes, but keep in mind that this is a book that covers like thousands of years of history. God delights in remaining anonymous and working behind the scenes. And what does that mean? What is God doing in your life right now? Again, for me, I'm just only using it because it happened this morning. I happened to be standing in the foyer. Seth walked in. I didn't know who he was. I said, to, I, I think I was talking to Greg, uh, Greg uh, Sawatsky, and I said, Greg, there's a new guy there. I'm going to go over and greet him. So he walked in the door. I met him. He says, you're Jim, aren't you? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he told me, and I was like, you know what? I don't have someone teaching. Let's go talk. Went into my office. Had a chance to spend an hour and 15 minutes. That was just God at work. You think I had anything to do with that? It was God. It's like, how do we start the Marshallese church? God did it. All of a sudden, he started bringing Marshallese people here. Now, look in your own life. What is God doing? Is, is circumstances changing? Is there a new neighbor? Is there a new person? Maybe somebody called you that you haven't spoken to in a long time. And unless they're trying to sell you Amway or something, you know. But maybe, they, maybe they're just calling to catch up. and Maybe there's a reason. So go with it. See, see what God's doing. What's happening when a, when a coworker says to you, can I share a struggle I'm having with you? This is God at work, guys. Stop what you're doing and pay attention. God is working and he wants to use you. I texted my dad this morning because my dad is the one that uh, told me about Seth and introduced Seth to me. And I said, dad, God used you. There's a young man who's going to heaven because God used you. God wants to use you and me. But we have to get on his agenda, by the way. And I've, I've told this to you over and over again, that when we pray, Jesus taught us to pray. There's this prayer. I think you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what's the next part? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that saying? That's saying as you pray every day, because it's a daily prayer, give us this day our daily bread. As you pray every day, what you're saying is, God, your kingdom is what I'm here for. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm living for you. God, however you want to use me today. So open your spiritual eyes and begin to see, maybe it's not a coincidence that this opportunity is in front of you or this person is coming into your life because that's how God works. And then, finally, act on what God puts before you. I mean, that to me is the great thing of what Esther does. She, we don't get to choose. We run with endurance the race that is set before us. You don't get to choose the race, amen? amen? We don't get to choose a lot of circumstances that happen to us, but we do get to choose what we're going to do. Yeah. Esther was given a choice, and Mordecai said, God's put you there for such a time as this. Do you think she was scared? Say yes. She did not want to go into the king. That was not her plan, but she realized this is what's before me. And notice, between the first night of the banquet and the second night of the banquet, I'm absolutely convinced that these last two principles is exactly what Esther did. She was struggling. How do I tell the king? How do I tell the king? How do I tell the king? And then all of a sudden, she sees the next day Mordecai being walked around by the villain all day long. And she's like, okay. Now's my time. Now's my time. Now's the time to act. Act. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this in any way in glory 
to myself because it's not about me. But again, I'm just using it because it's real. It's practical. This morning, I'm there. Seth walks in. I'm not teaching life group. I could have said, well, nice to see you uh, come to a life group. But it's like the Spirit said, you got time. Meet with him now. Hallelujah. It was the best hour and 15 minutes of my morning so far. And I'm pretty sure it was a good one for Seth too. (laughs) Amen. Praise the Lord. Look to see where God is working and then act on it. Yes, of course, you still need to listen to wise counsel, test those things against God's word. I'm not saying just do whatever's in front of you, follow your heart. That's, don't twist that. But God is inviting us to join him where he is at work around us. As the worship team comes this morning, uh, we're going to close in just a moment with a song. And as always, we, uh, we like to have a time at the end of our service for the next five, six, seven minutes where we give you a chance to pray, to respond, to talk to God about what he has put in your heart. Um, I'm going to ask uh, our prayer team to come up, uh, pastors to come as well. Um, let's see, Pastor Doug, if you're here as well, maybe you can come to this side. Sharon, if you come stand up here as well. Um, I just want to close with one thing. God is an anonymous God where he works behind the scenes, but God does not wish to remain anonymous to you, okay? He wants you to know him. He's revealed himself to us in his word, and, um, and he's at work around you, and he wants you to experience him as you walk through life today. But keep in mind that this is how God works behind the scenes And begin to open your eyes and trust the things that are happening around you that God's good and will use them for good.